Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, reforming higher education. So, uh, Richard, since we last spoke, Hillary Clinton has been back in the news, this time with a proposal that is intended to make college more affordable for American students. So Hillary unveils a plan, the goal of which is to allow kids to be able to attend a public college or university without going into debt. And she's planning on doing this primarily through federal grants to the states, which have a bunch of conditions attached to them. She wants to make community college free, just as President Obama does. And for people who do take out loans, she wants to cap payments at 10 percent of discretionary income and forgive whatever balance is left after 20 years. Now, we don't need to go through the specifics of each one of those proposals, but let, let's just start here. What do you make of that directionally? Are those the areas that you want to focus on if you're trying to make a college education more affordable in America? Well, the first question you have to ask is, is affordability the issue at this particular point, or is it the quality and the content of the education that you have to worry about? And the community colleges are an interesting focal point because the last thing that we want out of our community colleges is to try to create people who are sensitive about the humanities but know nothing about any serviceable or usable trade. Uh, it's not that you want to exclude humanities from any program, quite the opposite, they're essential, uh, but it's quite clear that you have to have some way in which people can transition from uh, the community colleges into the job market or into other educational venues. And I don't see anything about substance in this proposal or in those, for example, by Bernie Sanders that will do it. So um, unless you do that, I think it's a mistake. Uh, second point, I think, is uh, when you use the word public community colleges, I think that this is a terrible disservice. Uh, public universities have to be subsidized. If you're not going to subsidize them through tuition or, or support them through tuition, the subsidies from the state or federal governments are going to have to increase. The tax payments that are needed to support it are going to have to increase. Um, and it turns out that the savings opportunities for people who have to pay these taxes, say sales taxes, are going to be diminished. So um, the revenue side of this thing is completely unexplored. It's also quite clear that if you do this, it's the death knell or it's going to be a serious blow to any private profit institutions that are trying to fill the same kind of space. And so you have to ask yourself, what is the logic of a system which takes schools that are by and large lower performing than their private competitors, give them huge subsidies that drive the private competitors out, when as a for-profit sector, they actually do contribute something to the uh, revenues. Now, in general, we have this with respect to the current educational grants, which are probably too large. And uh, the Obama administration, I assume that Ms. Clinton, if she's elected president, would do the same thing. They're trying to squash out the profit institutions and give more and more money to the nonprofits by having some very arduous requirements of what you have to do as a for-profit institution to get these monies where there's no analogous um, restrictions on the public case. I think this is exactly in the wrong directions. If anything, what you want to do is to figure out how it is that you can reduce the public burden by shifting more of the educational function to people who know what they're doing. Uh, the third point is you never want to give people a free anything um, because their decisions are going to be made under very different circumstances. If they know they have to put their own money on it and realize that if it turns out that it doesn't work out well, they're going to be out. 
if in fact you get free public monies in which to do this and it doesn't pan out, uh, the costs to you financially and otherwise are going to be lower. So you'll make inferior decisions under these circumstances, less responsible decisions, and you'll perform less well in terms of the way in which you're doing. And I don't think you want that to be part of the situation at hand either. So for all of these reasons, and I'm sure more you don't run a good system by creating more subsidies, more transfer payments, more bureaucracies, more federal and state cooperation. What you do is you create a better system by reducing the general overhang of government on these situations and trying to expand the educational opportunities that could be supplied by the private sector, not by subsidizing them, but by stopping stepping on their particular throat. And I've been involved in some of these accreditation disputes, and it's just unreal as to what is required by the various agencies and their efforts to throttle some of the private schools that have had real successes. And I think, in effect, it's like so many things, it's just a very wrong move in a very bad direction. Richard, has public policy been too aggressive on the consumer side here? And what I mean by that is sort of similar to what we've seen in the past with housing policy. No one doubts that owning a home makes sense for a lot of people. No one doubts that going to college makes sense for a lot of people. But in both cases, it seems as if, uh, at least publicly anyway, the push from elected officials a lot of times is that it needs to – everybody needs to do it. Are we perhaps pushing a little too hard to get more people into higher ed? Well, the only thing I disagree with that statement is the little. I think we're putting much too hard <laughs> on this particular problem. And let's you know start off with the homeowner type situation. Um, if it weren't for some of the peculiarities of the tax law, um, particularly when you're talking about multiple unit dwellings, a lease arrangement or a rental arrangement is vastly superior to a home ownership situation. Uh, you don't have people having to put down payments up. Uh, you don't worry about foreclosures because forfeitures under leases are much easier to achieve. And at the end of the term, the landlord need not renew it. And so the effort to create the homeowner drive, which was shared by both the Bush administration and the Democrats during the uh, you know, first 10 years of this particular century, have, I think, turned out to be a real disaster resulting in massive foreclosures. And then what you do is you say, oh, we can't throw these people out on the street, so you delay it. And then the premises get wrecked. And by the time you're done, the billions of dollars are going to be lost out of this system where leases can do it. The same thing is true with respect to a college education. There is no right to have a college education any more than there's a right to have a PhD or to have a job that pays you $100,000. What people should do is have opportunities, and if it turns out that some people are better for the trades than they are for academics, there's no reason why they can't prosper by moving in that particular direction. The key thing is to make sure that people develop a set of marketable skills, which include not only such things as reading and writing and computer literacy, but also some of the elementary features of how it is that you behave on a job. And that means, for example, do you know how to show up on time, what to dress, what to wear, how to say things to customers, to superiors, to inferiors, and so forth. These are social skills that people aren't getting. So you want to improve the flow. The last thing you want to do is to start to create subsidies under non-accountable institutions. What you want to do is to make sure that the ability for people to take internships, to avoid the orders of the minimum wage laws are going to be increased. Um, one of the key features to understand about education is that if you let it, Huge amounts of education will take place on the job. There are many people who crave, literally beg, to get internships, trainee positions, apprenticeships of some sort where they get absolutely nothing by way of salary. 
Are they being exploited? Absolutely not. The increase in human capital that develops from getting both the technical skills and the social skills needed to work are what really matters. So at the same time, you see people trying to subsidize the beginning of this process. They are wrecking the economy with the high minimum wage laws, the change in the uh, overtime regulations under the Fair Labor Standards Act and so forth. So what you're seeing here is a typical progressive maneuver. They find a mistake in the market, and what they do is they impose restrictions to prevent exploitation, so-called, and then subsidies to offset it. Both these provisions are, in fact, mistaken. And what you really have to do is not to dictate the ends that people have, but to give them a set of low-cost options, market-generated, to decide whether they want the university track or they want something else. And if you want to get them to this level, what you have to do is to get somebody like Mrs. Clinton to come out and to support Foursquare charter schools. Um, which cost less and provide more than the public education. They're about two-thirds the cost, and God knows in places where you actually know what's going on, they could be one, two, or three years ahead in terms of their educational situation. Uh, but if you're bound to the unions, you're going to like the high minimum wage laws, you're going to subsidize public unionized community colleges, and you're going to make sure that public education remains a public union monopoly. This is very bad social policy. There's a model that's been getting a fair bit of attention recently. The Wall Street Journal just had a piece on it where rather than take out conventional loans, college students will actually take on what are in essence investors who will get a percentage of their income for a period of time after they graduate. Now, that keeps you from getting deep into debt for a degree that doesn't pay off. It may also mean you end up paying out a pretty penny for one that does. Does that strike you as a decent alternative approach to be taking here? Look, if you look at the private sector and ask the number of people who are prepared to actually make investments in students in which they take an equity piece, i.e. if the kid earns a lot after he graduates, you get more, otherwise you get nothing, is absolutely zero. And so the last thing you want to do is to subsidize a program which has never worked in the public sector. Now, why doesn't it work in the private sector? Well, there is a huge moral hazard problem. Um, if it turns out that you think you're going to be somebody who's going to work in low-income jobs and there may be perfectly legitimate government occupations or working in service industries and so forth, you'll take one of those things. But if you're going to be the kid who thinks he's going to be an entrepreneur when he gets out and work on Wall Street, you're not going to give somebody 10% equity. And so therefore, what's going to happen is you're going to get people who, from a financial point of view will be losers. What you like about the fixed loan is that you do not, under these circumstances, have to worry about uh, the occupational choices of your workers. Um, you're going to get you a fixed rate of return. It's going to be fine. Now, does this mean you're going to block this situation? Uh, many law schools, NYU and Chicago amongst them, I believe, do have programs whereby the scholarships that you or the loans that you receive may be forgiven if you work in some kind of a public interest job. Um, but they run these things under fairly tight kinds of restrictions. And my view is so long as you have the monitoring capacity from the private lender of the money and you want to do it, fine. There's absolutely no argument here in favor of illegality. But when you have the government doing this thing, you know right off from the back that the level of supervision you will get with respect to the loan will be zero. If you recall about 10 years ago or whatever, they decided to take the loan program out of private bankers and put them into the public hands, and the rates of defaults on these loans absolutely skyrocketed. And it's the classic illustration. You find one or two cases of lenders who are a bit too abrupt with their people who say, oh, this program can't work on the private side. Then you put it into the government side, and everything just falls wide open. So you never want to get yourself into this frame of mind 
There are too many gimmicks in too many areas, too much. And the fact is that our system is failing, not because we have too little support for education, but we have too much erratic control over it. We did a lot better in many ways, uh, you know, 50 or 60 years ago with a fraction of the spending and a fraction of the regulation. What the spending does is it essentially funds the compliance cost for the regulation, creates inferior incentives, and does nothing as far as I can see to improve the overall quality of the American workforce. Final question that I'll put to you, Richard. Is higher education ripe for a major disruption? You hear this argument, especially on the right, a lot, that higher ed has gotten so expensive, so sclerotic, so sort of untethered from reality that we're going to find ourselves soon in a place where someone's going to come up with an alternative model, a lot of people pointing towards the influence of technology there, that's going to force existing schools to essentially reform or die. Do you see that happening? Well, it depends on which sector of the market you're looking at and why. There's no question that you know the community colleges are actually the places that are most vulnerable to this because it's effective to put substitutes in place. When you start getting to elite universities, you could say that the model is a disaster in some sense, but if you have 10 or 15 applicants for every place and you have a huge influx of students from overseas trying to get American positions at elite universities, you can say that it's crazy. Now, you'll look at the price tags on the stated commission and you're getting something wrong because there's a huge amount of price discrimination that takes place in the forms of scholarship to needy students of one kind or another so that the situation turns out to be a bit more inclusive than you otherwise see. So that part of the model, judging by consumer demand, is doing pretty well. The state schools seem to be doing pretty well as well. The religious schools seem to be doing pretty well um, for these things. Uh, There are obviously very strong differences that I have uh, with many people who run the social science and the humanities curriculum. And what happens is there's a market response to that which is the number of people who major in these disciplines starts to go down. And they don't go down because they don't like humanities. They go down because they do like humanities and they don't get it in humanities departments today, which regard, you know, Shakespeare and Rabelais as dirty words unless you get somebody who's a little bit more trendy to talk about. Um, Now, can you do online education and so forth? The answer is, of course you can. Um, Where is it going to be most disruptive? It's going to be places like Phoenix University and so forth, where in effect you develop a kind of complicated delivery system. And you do this not for college students who want to be on campus and have residence and do sports, but there are lots of people in their 20s and 30s who are trying to get another degree who don't want the rah-rah athletics and so forth. They have to go to school after class, after work or before work and so forth. And many of the private universities absolutely specialize in having 730 classes for people who work on the Hill in Washington, D.C. and so forth. So I think there'll be a lot of changes that will take place, but often within the traditional framework. And here's the other point. I'm no seer about this stuff. I do follow it because I have a son and a son-in-law, both of whom are pretty heavily involved in the educational business, and I get a lot of free information that way. But it's essentially an old point from Robert Nozick, which is, If you have voluntary transactions and they are done without forced coercion and mistake, you just watch and see what the outcomes are. You don't try and impose a series of pattern principles or to predict the future to the point where you're prepared to regulate the way in which it goes. Um, That's just a lot of hubris. There's a lot of hubris in Hillary Clinton. There's some, I suspect, in many of the Republicans. But I think, in effect, you wind up the doll and let the various players move as they will, and you'll do a lot better then you will with more regulation, more compliance, more subsidies, and more fancy footwork, all of which will turn out to be in vain. 
All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at Hoover.org. And you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit Hoover.org. <laughs>